Welcome to But Jesus Drank Wine and other stories that kept us stuck. I'm Mead. And I'm Christy. In this podcast, we'll explore the stories that kept us, well, stuck, wanting to drink and not wanting to drink all at the same time. Join us as we show you that freedom from alcohol does not have to mean a life sentence of misery and missing out, but actually means living an authentic life full of peace, joy, and purpose. Hi, ladies. Hello. Hey, Annie. Hey, so good to be here. Oh my gosh. Thank you so much for joining us. We are so grateful, y'all. I mean, I think most of our listeners know who Annie Grace is. They're familiar with Annie Grace's work. They're familiar with The Snaked Mind. Annie is a founder and author of The Snaked Mind and mentor coach to us. Uh, we did our coaches training through The Snaked Mind Institute. So we have some some history together, and we're just so, so grateful that she agreed to come today and chat with us about this topic that really hits home for folks and something that we're all kind of, you know, in this stage with our kids. Uh, how do we how do we talk to our kids about alcohol? So we're gonna we're gonna get into it, but first, for I was just I was gonna share because I was thinking about this the other day. Um, this is we're recording this right after Mother's Day, and on Mother's Day I got this text from a friend or a client who's now a friend, and she was just like, "Happy Mother's Day, and what a gift that you've been to so many kids for helping their moms become." the best versions of themselves. And, and it was something that of course I don't take credit for. I mean, it's an honor and a privilege to walk alongside people when they journey to, you know, finding freedom from alcohol. But I also think about, you know, how it, it was the natural extension for me to want to do this work because of the gift of this naked mind and what Annie, you started so many years ago. And, you know, it all started with the discomfort and the curiosity, which is something that I think is universal. People look at us and think, well, gosh, it's not possible for me to find freedom from alcohol. Like Annie is a rainbow unicorn and Christy and me, they're just rainbow unicorns. Like it's not possible for me too. But when you think about where it started and what is actually possible and how it does have that ripple effect to our kids and other, I mean, just so on and so forth. So anyway, so I'm passing that kind of text on to you, Annie, and saying thank you and happy Mother's Day as well. So if you could just, for those who don't know a little bit of your background, would you give us just a little, a little briefing on where your whole journey started and where it is now? And we'll get into the, the good stuff after that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I am a mom of three. I've got a five-year-old, a 11-year-old, almost 12, and a 14-year-old. And I stopped drinking over eight years ago now. So my 14-year-old would have been, what would that make him? Six. And I, I remember one of my major moments in my like history of, of drinking that was particularly painful for me was when he was probably four or five and I was on the couch and I said, Hey, come snuggle with me. And he goes, no mom, you smell bad and your teeth are purple. And it was just so heartbreaking because at that moment, you know, there's nothing the kid probably wants more than to snuggle with their mom. They're so open and into that. I have a five-year-old now and literally there's nothing better that she wants to do. And so I'm sure that you know, for him to say no was, there was something for sure wrong. And also for me to just feel so kind of rejected and know it was my fault. And so 
there were a few other moments in, in my parenting, but I think it was parenting specifically that did create so much of the cognitive dissonance inside me. Like, and what I mean by that is the inner fighting, yeah. you know, on one hand, I was both doing it, drinking to get through the day to be the best mom that I could. I, I really, truly believed that. I, I believe, you know, in a lot of ways that drinking is actually an act of, of self-love, of self-preservation, of, you know, sanity preservation. We just have this tool and our brains get really confused. And so we're, we're using it in order to self-soothe. And I really believed that alcohol was the duct tape that was holding my whole life together. And then on the other side of my mind, you know, there was this, this screaming insistence that I was a terrible person and I was ruining my life. And I, I couldn't believe that um, I was sacrificing so much to this fermented liquid in a glass. It, it felt just egregious and awful. And so inside my own mind, there was this, this voice of, I guess, reason telling me to drink less, which on a physical level, that felt very reasonable, but it was doing it through this punishing, awful, bullying, fear-based way. And then there was this other voice in my mind that was telling me it was all okay, really comforting me, but it was using the tool of alcohol as the main form of comfort and escape. And so I felt super stuck. And in so much pain and those moments with my children, I, I would say were so poignant in their ability to kind of wake me up and be like, wait, Mm. okay, there is something that's a problem here. That's yeah. It's so relatable. That's, I mean, I share a very similar story with my four-year-old who denied my kisses and it was that like punch to the gut. And yeah, I love what you just said, Annie, about Cause that's exactly what it felt like. It was a wake up. It was, Oh, okay. Everything that I've been feeling and trying not to pay attention to is trying to get my attention here. And if I take that courageous turn towards what is here for me to see, then maybe there is freedom and relief around the, around the corner. That's so powerful. So relatable. I think for, um, doesn't have to be the rock bottoms, right? We don't have to wait till it gets to that. It's paying attention to that voice of reason that's there trying to tell us something. And it's our way out of stock. Like that's, yeah, the stories that keep us stuck. I had all of those as well. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Christy, Mm. I know you were right there too. Yeah. I'll never forget Carter who was like, yeah, he must've been like six at the time we were at, um, you know, in a backyard party that just kept going. And I just wanted to keep going and keep drinking. And he, you know, I had this genius idea that we were all going to, everyone's going to have a sleepover. We're just going to sleep over here. So the moms can keep drinking the rosé. And he was sitting and I'll never forget his face, like bunched in a little ball saying, mommy, why can't I just go to home to my bed? And I'm like, but this is so much fun. And yeah, it took me a while to get over that one. <laughs> felt so, so horrible for making him just like, basically sleep in the corner of a room so I could keep drinking rosé in the back garden. Yeah. Yeah. And Annie, what's so radical and so like that this was so huge for me in my journey. And I know that this is, I mean, what makes this naked mind methodology just so groundbreaking, so different is that grace and compassion that we start with. So we can look at that where we are in that situation. And we can, instead of the fear-based way that you mentioned as well, like that other side of us, it's like, 
you know, yelling at us, critiquing us. It's no, let's infuse ourselves with some grace and compassion for where we are stuck. And that actually is the way that leads us to taking those steps towards freedom versus, you know, staying stuck further. And so, you know, is that something that then translates over to how we talk to our kids about alcohol and, yeah, absolutely. So I think that in, in my journey, sort of the next thing that happened was, well, a lot of different things, but I, I remember kind of it reaching a, a crescendo internally in terms of the fighting, right? And it was almost like this, I imagine this rubber band and you're pulling against these like two opposing forces. And one is this, you know, bullying voice of reason that's just toxic and horrible. And then the other one is this actually nice, gentle voice that's killing me with alcohol. And it's like this, this battle between these two things. And I didn't really have words for it at the time. How I would describe it then is that if I have to stop drinking and be miserable, because if you look at that, that tug of war between those two voices, the stop drinking voice, if you let that one win, you're left with that voice, right? Like that's, that's Mm -hmm. who you're siding with. You're siding with this Mm -hmm. bully this shame inducing, you're worthless, good for nothing, can't believe you've fallen this far, horrible, like just, you know, attacking voice. But if, if you let the other side win, you're left with drinking. And so I felt just so desperately in between a rock and a hard place. And, and it was that I, my words for it at the time were, if stopping drinking is as much misery as I believe it will be, I'm just going to keep drinking. Yeah. And so I, I really believed that if it was as horrible as I had imagined it would be, if it was going to be as terrible, and I was just going to keep drinking. And I remember coming back from the UK and being hung over from the night before, having drank at the restaurant, the hotel restaurant that morning, one of those lines that I thought I wouldn't actually cross, but I did, you know, alcohol first thing in the morning. And I remember sitting in the airport and just having this experience of just that rubber band, like feeling like it was going to snap just this, like, I literally can't do this anymore. I I can't do this anymore. And just the, the crescendo of the internal argument and the internal pain and the cognitive dissonance. And when it got like to snapping or maybe it did snap, I don't know. I was hysterical. I was in tears, but I remember a new voice coming in kind of a third voice. Uh, which I think is really special. And like, you can, you can think of it as like divinity or God or my own higher self or however you want to frame it. That's comfortable for you. But for me, it was very much like there was this other voice that just asked a simple question. And the question was why, you know, why, why did you used to be able to drink and take it or leave it? And why is it now that if you have a drink or, or don't allow yourself to have a drink, you feel miserable, deprived, like you're outside of life, like you're, you know, like everything is falling apart. And so I made the decision in that moment to actually stop listening to both of the other voices and just listen to the why. So I stopped trying to stop drinking. I actually, and I think that's the most radical thing about this naked mind. It's actually you know, in, the, in the introduction of the book, it says, don't stop drinking while reading this book. <laughs> That's how you had all of us from the word go, right? I was going to say, that's why I could get through the whole book. Yeah, I was like, okay, I can do that. Thank you. Yes. Um, And and it was because it mirrored my own journey of, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give in to that fear, deprivation, bullying voice, right? But equally, I am going to allow myself self-compassion. 
I think I probably, if I was going to take a side, I almost sided with the drinking voice, but, but with this level of just radical curiosity about why. And the thing that's interesting is that that judgmental voice, the one that wanted me to be wrong in order, under the guise, by the way, of saving my life, you're going to die, you're going to get cancer, you're going to ruin your family, like all the right intentions with that, that internal side of me. But with that voice came so much prejudgment, like everything was already, already judged. And so there was no room for curiosity because once you judge, you can't ask, like your brain just shuts down the question where this other voice like was much more aligned with, okay, this third voice, which was like curiosity. And I know it sounds like I kind of have multiple personalities, but according to like family, (laughs) internal family systems theory, like we all actually do. And sometimes personifying those things can really help us understand ourselves. And it does completely and totally relate to, to children as well. But from that moment, I actually took almost a year to research the question why. And in that research, this naked mind, all the research for this naked mind was done. I stopped drinking. I ended up, you know, putting out my essays and blog posts and, you know, PDFs of my work online, getting feedback from all over the world. And I ended up self-publishing this naked mind. And, you know, now it's gone from a self-published book to selling, like my books have sold over 1.1 million copies, which is nuts. And, uh, and I think it's because it's such a different approach and it's one that I would say works with how the brain naturally works um, rather than directly in opposition to it. And you can think of it like a rope, right? Like if you if you pick up one side of a rope and start pulling, like you know there's another force that's going to pick up the other side and, and start pulling back. And with that introduction of like, okay, why? I actually was, I just wasn't pulling on the rope anymore. And I think that you know, well, I can, I can carry on or if you guys have any thoughts and questions and then I can go into how that relates to, to kids. Yeah, no, I, I was just going to say, I just, it's so funny too, how this takes me, takes me back to just having this conversation takes me back to, because in one hand, it feels like it was forever ago. I mean, it's been three and a half, over three and a half years since I found freedom from alcohol. And on the other hand, you know, it seems like yesterday, but just having that conversation and realizing just those feelings were so, gosh, that pain was so, was so intense and it would have been so easy to ignore it and stay stuck forever. In fact, I did for many years, not paying attention to it, but it just reminds me too, of just how grateful I am in your sharing vulnerably and putting it out there for others to hear from and seeing that like, I'm not alone in this and curiosity, not condemnation is a much more valuable tool. Yeah. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. And I love the way that you described to Annie, like the crescendo of just like getting to the point where it's like, I just can't do this anymore. Cause that's literally exactly what I said to myself in the mirror when I started this whole thing and picked up your book was like, I just can't do this anymore. And I think people like to know the timelines, right? It's like, when are you going to get to that point where you're like sick and tired and ready, but it's just, I think the only way to kind of understand that is to come to it from this self-compassion angle, right? Like you have to go through your own experiences. You have to go through your own journey and coming into it from this way just makes it so much, I don't know, so much better, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And very similar to how we think about talking to our children, right? Because if we, if we imagine our children and kind of what's going on in their psyche, like it's, it's similar forces at work, right? There's, there's a force that really wants independence desperately. And then as parents, we are desperate for togetherness. 
And so as the child grows and like tries to spread its own wings, we are clenching and, and protecting. Right. And so so that creates so much conflict. And it's interesting because one of the dynamics in parenting that's fascinating is that we actually give littler kids more freedom sometimes than we give older kids commiserate to how much responsibility they can actually handle because of our own fear. So for instance, if we have a toddler who we're like, okay, well, fine, if they're doing whatever, at least they can't physically hurt themselves, right? So we kind of, whatever, no big deal. Like you were saying, Christy, they can sleep in the corner. Like you just have this like level of like resiliency because you know you've protected them in this bubble. They can't mm-hmm. physically go get booze. They can't physically go get in a car. They can't physically, you know, go do some of the things that that we have fear about them doing. And then as they get older, we start to, as parents, recognize that, oh my gosh, they can do some of these things. In fact, they might be doing some of these things. In yeah. fact, probably hiding these things from me. And so what do we do? We clench, mm-hmm. right? Like we come yeah. in with this energy of like, protection and togetherness, which if you go back to the rope analogy, what are we doing? We're picking up the rope. We're introducing conflict, right? And I think one of the best um, kind of commentaries on parenting that I've ever read is just a little audio program that Rob Bell did called Launching Rockets. And it's 17 thoughts about parenting. He says that your number one job as a parent is to keep them talking number one job. If you keep them talking, then you will be the one that's there for them when they have the questions. You will be the one that is able to to provide guidance, by the way, when they ask for it, not just whenever you want for your own comfort. And so you have to look at that and break that down and say, okay, well, what does it take to keep a child talking? And then you have to think about it from our, who do we want to talk to? We certainly don't want to talk to people we feel like are going to judge us. We also don't want to talk to people who we feel like are afraid for us. In fact, that's one of the things that can stop children from talking more than anything else because they love us. They don't want to cause us fear. I literally now at 45 years old won't tell my mom if one of my kids is sick because I'm like, oh, she's just coming. <laughs> yep. And so how much Great like voice. am I sabotaging so from myself and my mom because I don't want her to worry. So they're not going to talk to you if you are afraid for them. They're not going to talk to you if you don't trust them. And we think, oh, they have to earn the trust. That's probably the most backward parenting paradigm I've ever heard. Yeah, it's so true. We have to give them the trust first. Like trust is like actually not something that can be earned, just like respect, right? Like it's given, not earned. And so when we think about that, if the goal is to keep them talking, and and by the way, one of the ways that you sabotage talking. Imagine this scenario. So I have a 14 year old, he comes home from school and he feels super comfortable with me because we've always had a great relationship. We've not entered that point in our relationship where his friends are doing bad things or he's doing bad things. So like we're blissfully ignorant. Then he goes to school and he behind the dumpster, somebody offered him a cigarette. And so he comes home from school and he's like, mom, like, he's all uncomfortable. And I'm like, what's going on? And he doesn't want to talk about that person. I'm like, you can tell me anything. 
And he finally tells me, and he's like, it was just like, I don't know. It made me feel sick to my stomach. Like, I don't know. I don't know what to think about this. Oh my gosh. I'm calling their mom. Who was it? How did this even happen? I can't believe this is going on at your school. <laughs> we put you in private school. I mean, how are you doing? What do you feel like? Do you need me to talk to somebody? Like, guess who he's never talking to again? Guess who he is never <laughs> talking to yeah. again? And how instantaneous is that reaction for us? But it doesn't come from actual love. It comes from protection. Yes. And it comes from our own need to be comfortable in that situation. Mm, so the, the thing that needs to happen is just a non-anxious presence. Mm. It's so hard, though. That's so hard. <laughs> It is so hard. I made this, I made this colossal mistake. I did this like a couple weeks ago. Ella, my daughter's, I'm in the UK, Annie. I don't know if you remember that. I'm in London. And she just started um, boarding school and she's 13. And a girl was really mean to her and I emailed her head of house. And I, I, I shouldn't have done that, of course, because Ella was like, I'm not going to tell you anymore when the girls are mean to you. You're going to email my head of house. And I'm like, gosh, darn it. Wrong parenting move. <laughs> but so you want to protect them. You're so right. Yeah. So hard. It's, it's so hard. But here's the brilliant thing. And here's where we should all have so much hope is that as we see the dynamic, as we become aware of the dynamic, the dynamic changes. So often we feel probably like you're feeling a little bit right now, Christy, of you feel like, oh my gosh, I saw that. And I saw this mistake. And now I'm going to have to work so hard to get over this mistake or change my ways. This is a big mountain I have to climb. There's work to do here. And that's actually not true. That's like not how the brain works. Like 90% of healing is awareness. So actually in just seeing the dynamic and just listening to this and just understanding this, that dynamic will shift in you. That's one of the things that this naked mind is like so profound with is people don't have to do anything. Yeah. They just absorb the information and their feelings change about alcohol. And so when you see the dynamic, the dynamic will naturally shift and naturally change. And so you can take like a lot of hope and just understanding is the, is the way, right? It is the, the yeah. cure, if you will. And yeah. even if you keep, you know, there's going to be vacillation. You're going to see it. You're going to do it again. You're going to be like, oh, but now I saw it. Like, but it, like the awakening has happened. You, that's it. You, you see it in a different way now. Yeah. I've gotten to where I yeah have to like give my husband like the look of like you better put on your poker face like so you know she's like she's about to walk in the door he's you know he's coming home from then whatever my kids are 15 13 and 8 and and I like give him that and like poker face is what we need because in that in our reactivity that is what not saying that I knowing this you know is is not always like what I'm practicing but um <laughs> But I'm, but I'm learning and I'm, and I'm relating it to so much of the, you know, freedom from alcohol journey too, where it's like the relationship to whether it's alcohol or, you know, whatever it is, our children, our husband, our whoever, like the relationships that we have, that when we bring in that, that anxiety, that fear, that holding tight, the clenching that you talked about, Annie, that does change. That doesn't give security. Like the, you know, our kids want security and safety in us. And when we're bringing that energy, um, that's not what they're feeling. And so of course they're not going to share with us. It's, it's interesting how many times it takes to actually like then remember, like bring the poker face, don't react. So it's, true. It's, it's so powerful. It's so powerful. And I, I, I think that, you know, following on that is like the, the logical question of, okay, well, what can I do? <laughs> 
Yeah. <laughs> I can't yeah. just watch my kids just devolve into like drugs and alcohol. And I think a lot of it is, it's so much digging deep for our own faith, right? Like it's so much digging deep for really the belief that your child's like your children are not your own. You know, mm-hmm. I love the, mm-hmm. um, the prophet is a book by Khalil Gibran and he has a poem and it's called on children. And it's probably one of my favorite writings on this, but he says, you know, your children come through you, but you're not, they're not of you. You can seek to be like them, but don't seek to make them like you. And Mm. it's so true. Like I, we talk about it in our house that my daughter, Dalen, the five-year-old were like, she's version 2.0. She's, she's the most, she has the most upgraded software of any of us because she was born in a time where there's just more human evolution and more human understanding and more wisdom, right? Like it's, it's very clear scientifically that, you know, trauma passes through our DNA now, but that's also true. And that understanding and wisdom must do the same, right? Like, so, so she's like up-leveled and it blows my mind when I ask her certain questions and her responses and what she's learning and what she's understanding. And I think if we take the time to, to learn for and, and listen to our children, we're like, so much of the fear falls away because we're like, oh, oh, they actually do have a leg up. Oh, wait a second. Mm. They were raised by me, not my parents. Yeah. That's a bonus. <laughs> like, <and then> my parents, <laughs> yeah. You know, we're raised by their parents and not their parents. Like the right. whole thing is getting better, right? There's, there's such incredible research and writing on how so many things are actually getting better, right? Like hate is, is less, than it's ever been. And and I know it doesn't feel like that because we have more transparency of information. Yeah. And that's a beautiful thing because it awakens us at a faster rate. But the truth is that, you know, people dying in wars is, is so much less. People dying from violent crimes is so much less. Life expectancy is so much less. Women's ability to, to read and hold jobs and have equality is so much more. You know, child abuse is less. So many things like there's just oodles and oodles of statistics. And some of my favorite works on that is uh, the angels of our better nature is one of the books. I forget the author, I forget his other book, but the angels of our better nature is the one that I'll recommend. And it's just all of these statistics about how everything really is getting better. And so how do you do it? How do you let go of control? How do you let go and you lean into faith? You know, in my, my family on my father's side is Jewish and in the Jewish tradition, uh, children become adults at the age of 13. It's through a bar mitzvah or a bat mitzvah. And it's this ceremony and this traditional thing. And like, yes, in today's day and age, like my son went to a, a bar mitzvah recently. It was just like a party and the kid's still a kid, but really biologically, you know, I don't know, maybe overshare, but I got my period when I was 13. Like really biologically at 13, we're really done being kids. Mm-hmm. Our All the control we think we have is completely an illusion, mm-hmm. completely <laughs> an illusion. They can think whatever they want. You can force them not to do things if they're in, and you can threaten them and you can do all of those things at the detriment to your relationship. Mm-hmm. And if your number one goal is to keep them talking so that when they want advice, they'll ask you first everything you do to try to control them. Cause you have to think of it. Like I, I have a belief about the world. And I think this is, you know, the fundamental nature of why this naked mind works is that there's four forces of an individual psyche and very similar to how there's four forces in nature that govern all of, all of physics, all of nature. So those four forces in nature are like 
gravity, electromagnetism, the strong force and the weak force, which is interesting. But the four forces that I believe govern human psychology are the force of togetherness, the force of independence, the force of expansion, and the force of protection. And the force of expansion is our need for growth. The force of protection is our need for safety. The force of togetherness is our need for community. And the force of individuality is our need for autonomy or independence. You can see if you look at it through those lenses, as a child growing up, they are all out on an expansion individuality path. That is more important to them than you as a parent. <laughs> Sorry to say. <laughs> yeah. But in your teenage years, your own need, their need, not their want to disturb you or make you have gray hair or upset <laughs> you or make you, like make your reputation bad in your community or any of that <laughs> thinking about you. They are on their own journey towards expansion and individuality to find out who they are in this world. And you as a parent are all about togetherness and clinging and protection. And so similar to my inner dialogue of that rubber band stretching, there's only so far that rubber band can stretch before the relationship is broken. And so if you think of it through that way, like where am I being protective and how can I align with my child's beautiful journey of expansion and individuality? How can I come alongside them and just be in awe of them? All they want from us is our attention ever since they were little, but not our judgmental attention, not our attention trying to control them. They just want us to watch, like literally watch me. 10,000 times a day, my daughter, watch me, watch me, watch me, watch me do this, watch me do that. They just want just attention. I remember I heard you say this. I think you, you said it on a podcast. Um, and my first thought was, I wish I was present, more present within those first early years, right? Because it just makes you feel like you do only have till they're like, I don't know, 11, 12, maybe. And you just, yeah, I mean, obviously... <laughs> had to do a lot of you know work to like forgive myself for those drink, early drinking days but when you look at it that way right like yeah those early years are so important because it's so true by by the early teens they just want to be their own people but keep in mind christy like you only have until they're 11 or 12 through the paradigm of control mm -hmm. when you let go of that control you have your whole life to enjoy your children and have them enjoy you yeah I have a better relationship with my teenager probably than, I mean, I have great relationships with all my kids, but like, man, he will tell me anything. And that's because since I realized these truths, there's been one goal, align with him in his journey and watch him and be present. Don't try to control. Don't try to intervene. And guess what he does? He asks me for advice. What do you think about this? This girl said that. This person is doing that at school. I want help with this because the internet feels dangerous to me. How can you, right? But none of that would be happening if, if my energy wasn't right. And guess what? Like he and I are like really close friends. And I think we'll always be really close friends. And I think friendship, if you think of friendships, like it's just like your kids, we, we carve them out as a separate entity, but they're just a human being. And if we can like let our fear go a little bit to be a little less attached to what they do or what, because by the way, our fear is never actually entirely about what they do. It's about what they're doing means about us. And that's the root of it, right? Like even with the drinking, 
even with the drugging. Yeah, there's maybe a little fear, but we all went through it too. We're all right. It's not even really that visceral fear. The visceral sick to your stomach fear comes from I did it wrong. I was not the mom I was supposed to be. That's where the fear comes from. And so it's it's completely self-involved. And when we see it like that, it, it becomes easier to let go of, right? We can we can start to let go of that fear in, in such a bigger, better way. And like with my son, you know, if you think of it as a relationship rather than a child, once they hit that 13, I think we really do well to put it in that perspective because I'm like, what does a person want at this age? Mm, you know, so good. a person at this age yeah. actually just wants to be listened to. A person at this age, mm-hmm. probably a person at pretty much any age, does not want advice that they don't ask for. <laughs> yeah. Right? So true. I don't want advice mm-hmm. that my mom gives me that I don't ask for. There's nothing that will shut me down. <laughs> than that, right? So like, true. <laughs> don't want her feelings. Don't bring that around here. I don't want her advice. I just want her to show up and play with my kids, hang out, right? Have some iced tea. Like, and if you think of friendship and relationship, like the people you're friends with, and you guys have a beautiful friendship, so you can even apply this in your relationship, but the people you're friends with, you value more about how they feel about you than how you feel about them. That's just humanity, right? So you feel like Christy respects you. You feel like Christy trusts you. You feel like Mead, you know, admires you, right? Like whatever these feelings are that you guys have for each other, they're they're really like, and so think of that from a child's perspective. They just want to feel like you, the most important person in the world to them, think they got this. Yeah think they're worthwhile. And when you come with your fear and your controlling and your protection, they don't feel that. They actually feel like, oh, they feel shame. And if there's one thing that will drive any human being into any sort of addiction faster than any other dynamic, it's shame. Mm-hmm. So to that. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I just, I, I think about too, how I have Pastor David's voice in my head, Christy, and thinking about um, biblical parenting and how like our job is for them to transfer their dependency on us to the Lord when they're adults. And so we take our cues from Jesus and how he, you know, how he taught us to live with each other in not a shaming judgmental way and not a fear-based way in a full love, attention, time, presence kind of way that allows them to have that security and that trust and to come to us when those hard times come with also, you know, allowing that, um, leash is the word that comes to mind, but that's not what I'm (laughs) like. That doesn't really fit, but like allowing them to, you know, explore because they are asking those questions. Who am I and where do I belong? Like that is, and especially at that middle school age. I mean, I know that from the, the youth that I, that I lead, they're asking those questions. And then we as adults, aren't we asking the same questions too all the time? And so, Mm. yeah, I just, uh, I, I love, I just love this conversation because I think it's, um, it's stuff that maybe we know, but also like 
coming back to how do we practice it in a way that is authentic versus, okay, I've got this over here. I'm distracted by my relationship to alcohol and all that that entails. And so I want to be that mom for my kids, but as long as this is in the way, and as long as I have all of the fear and the constriction and all like, no matter how much we want that, if that is there, if we don't clear that out, if we don't make space and time, then, then we, we can't offer that, um, in a way that they then sense that they are loved and respected and admired and, and have our, our, our attention. So, so, so good, Annie. I love that. I have a question. Please. Sorry. I was just going to say what, like when you want the togetherness and you're desperate for the togetherness from the teenagers, but you don't want to, you know, you want to give them your, their independence. You want to keep them talking, all that things. Like, are there, what are your tips for coming to that from an angle where it's not going to backfire on you? So two things. Okay. One is, and I don't know where this originated from. I think it's a brilliant little tool, no matter the age of any human being. I learned it from a woman named Stacey Martino, and I know she credits somebody else with it. So anyway, I don't, I, I can't give credit for it because I don't know where it originated from, but the tool is called one, two, three, four. And it's super simple. And it basically says that you teach your child this, and then you ask them what this conversation is. And if it's a one, the conversation just means, I'm just talking. I want you to listen. That's it. And so, and, and interestingly, I have a best friend who I was actually just did this with her. And I was like, hey, like, I just want to be a better friend. Like, what we were talking about this tool. And, and she's like, yeah, there's so many times where you just try to fix and you don't listen. And I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I really see that as true in myself. And so now, like, if she's talking, like, I will literally be like, hey, Chelsea, is this, is this a one, two, a three or four? Which is so funny, but it's it's so appropriate. And so one is like, they just want you to listen. You are just a listener. And I would literally do this when they're hysterical. I would do this when they're coming home from school. I would do this or, um, and I would also give them the option to like, I mean, they might not want to even talk to you, but usually this is used when they're, they're they are talking to you. And this builds the trust and builds the rapport because they are still talking to you. They still need stuff from you. They still, you know, they're still talking to you in most cases, right? And so one is they just want to listen. Two is they want to dialogue. So they want to listen and, and they want to, you know, you to ask questions, but they don't just want you to be silent. And then three is they'd actually like to hear what you have to say. They'd like your advice. And then four is really for those situations. And maybe your daughter, this would have been a four for her where this is too big for them. They want you to handle it. They want you to call, right? They want you to intervene. They feel like they're being bullied. And so if you just give what, what the dynamic, just so you understand the dynamic of what that does is it gives them all the power back. You've given them autonomy, which is their driver for independence and individuality. And, you know, you've allowed them like just the power in the relationship and so they feel respected, they feel seen, they feel heard. Now you can't, you know, have them tell you it's a one and then they tell you something and you're like, well, I can't stand by for this. And then you move into four, you know, <laughs> yeah. the whole idea. And then the other way that I do, and I do this all the time, and honestly, it's not easy. Like, it's just not easy. Like, you know, there's times where my son will come home and he'll just be in a bad mood. He'll just have had a bad day. And there's nothing I want more than to be there for him and to fix it and to help him. And I'll knock on his door. I'll be like, go away. And I'll be like, okay, well, I'll totally go away. I love you very much. I am here if you want to talk. 
can I check back in 20 minutes? And that's a yes or a no. And either way, usually you'll say yes, and I'll check back in 20 minutes. They'll say, go away. I'll be like, all right, can I check back in 15 minutes? And like, maybe he'll say no. And I'll be like, can I check back in an hour? Maybe he'll say no. But like, you have to actually take their yes or no. <laughs> but always offer. And so this is like right in the center of that togetherness and individuality, right? It's right in the center where you're fully connected because you're like, I am here. If all the things you're worrying about today, you don't have to worry that I'm here. And you don't have to worry about offending me. God, let's not add that to your plate. You are getting the most intense transitions of your whole life, (laughs) biologically, Mm -hmm. neurochemically, physically. And then as a parent, we are asking you to worry about offending us. Yeah, it's so good. What are we even doing, right? And so it's like you have, my kids know there's nothing they will ever say that will offend me. And, and I told them that overtly. It wasn't like they had a guess at it. I like literally said, you can tell me anything you want. I was walking with my five-year-old the other day and she likes to like pretend podcast, right? Because do so many podcasts. And so I was, um, okay, what do you like? You're on the podcast. And she's like, I like this. I like that. <laughs> Cute. Like, I like my mom. And then she goes, looks at me and she goes, and I hate my mom. And I looked at her and I was like, wow, that's true for me too. Like, I do. I love my mom and I like my mom and I hate my mom. Like all those things are true. And she's like, yeah, we're like, yeah. And like, because there's no, there's no part of me that doesn't recognize the truth of that or or gets offended. Why am I going to get offended? Why am I going to try to change what's real or what's true for her? Right. And so, you know, staying really connected in that and, and letting them know that they're never going to offend you by not wanting to talk to you. And just, just then take your offense somewhere else. Take it to your partner. Take it to your journal, right? Take it on a run. <laughs> like, just take it somewhere else. And don't hold a grudge, right? Like, just, just be true in that. Just be truly connected while, while respecting their individuality. Let, let both things be true. And then the other very practical thing that I did to foster this kind of relationship was when they were very little, And any time is a good time for this, but I did it as soon as they could understand. I took each of them aside and I said, there's a lot of of places in the world where you feel like you might get in trouble, right? You're starting to notice that at school. You're starting to notice that in all of these other places. There's a lot of places where you might feel like you're getting, get in trouble. I want you to know that you can never get in trouble with me. If you tell me ahead of time, mom, I'm going to tell you something. You can't get me in trouble. I don't care if you just, you know, snorted a line of cocaine or you hit somebody with your car or I will be there for you without getting you in trouble. And every one of my kids, when I'd had this conversation with them, it was like their whole physicality changed. Like they started crying and they just felt so like, oh, in this whole entire brutal world, my mom is safe. And like, it was just like a weight. I don't have to hide from her. And at the core of that is what I did is I said, there's one place you don't have to be ashamed. There's one place where it's unconditional, like really unconditional. And I'll never be as unconditional as God, obviously, but as much as I can be. And like the number one command in the Bible is do not fear. And yet it's probably the number one thing we bring to parenting is that we got to be afraid for them. We got to worry for them. We don't even do it consciously. 
And so I know we didn't talk a lot about alcohol. Practically, give them this book, Bus to Bus Kill by me, <laughs> because this is all the science. And it honestly starts with, you know, you probably, if you read this book, you're going to know more than your parents do about alcohol. So it really joins with their, their need for autonomy and expansion. And it's, it's strictly factual. It's not opinionated. And so it's exactly speaking their language when they just want information. But yeah, I think that's sums it up pretty well. <laughs> I always, uh, yeah, thank you, Annie. I always talk about the, the, I always thought that finding freedom from alcohol was like my last, like missing piece to the puzzle and that then I can just ride off into the sunset and everything is, is <laughs> great and fine. But what I just have been gratefully surprised by is all of the, all of the surprise gifts that come from finding freedom from alcohol. And I will say that, you know, all of the things I knew, all the the basic stuff, but like all of the other things I didn't think of. And I will say that is one area where when I look back on the regret of drinking, you know, and how that affected my children and the difference between the 15 year old and the eight year old and, you know, uh, her experience versus the eight year old, it's, it's where I go, gosh, like I am so glad that I found freedom from alcohol because it has allowed me to see that where I have these things that I want for my children, if I work on my story, if I, I live this out for myself, if I get all of my crap out of the way, then I am able to show up in a different way for them. That's not fear-based that is, you know, in love and it, not that I do it perfectly, obviously, but it's, it's been one of the best surprise gifts of finding freedom from alcohol is that, that expansion you talk about that, you know, that comes. And so, so much of what you share, I think is just, it's very powerful and not just obviously related to how do we talk to our kids about alcohol? It's, it's huge. Thank you. Yeah. And I think it's really important thing to show up on our own journey first, you know, and I know it's, it's kind of cliche at this point in time, but it's cliche because it's true, but there's, there's literally no, nothing you can do that's more powerful than your own example. Yeah. I actually think an example of somebody who's been stuck and has found freedom, you know, and I, I know Christy, you, you have, you mentioned like some regrets that you have and, and I know we all feel that, but really repatterning that story of your past, because the reality is that their chances of not falling into the trap go up because of you living out loud a different way of life. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. And, and and it probably actually goes up more for the kids who see or remember it mm-hmm. than if you don't. Because our, yeah. our goal is never, ever to create a painless life for our kids. And when we confuse that as like, I want to, it, it's, it's, so, it's so maternal. It's so powerful for us to protect. I think we, we want to protect mm-hmm. more than we want to even protect ourselves. And yeah. And we want to protect them from pain, but pain is, is the teacher, right? Like it is how it is. And so when we are, um, I mean, we're just lying when we're trying to, you know, overly, overly protect them. And so them seeing that journey, them having that experience of both sides of you and them watching you is so like, there's nothing more powerful. Yeah. The the, the showing versus the saying, right? Like the showing the journey and what it can look like and taking the mess and making it a a beautiful message. There's, there is so much 
yeah, so much power in that. And I think it's easy to get, to forget that. So, uh, yeah, so, so powerful. Thank, Thank you, you, Annie. So much, so, Annie. Yeah. We just so, are so, so grateful. Yeah. Thank you. We'll put the, um, the link to the book, obviously in the show notes as well. Yeah. Yeah. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. You can find all of our episodes at butjesusdrankwine.com and make sure you follow us over on the gram at Love Life Sober with Christy and Mead at I'm Not Sober, I'm Free. To learn more about what we do, you can visit our websites at meadhollandshirley.com and lovelifesober.com. Take a screenshot of this podcast and share it with a friend or two. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't have to worry about missing a single episode. And if you love what we're doing, please leave us a review on Apple or Spotify. This helps more women who are feeling stuck and alone in the overdrinking cycle to find hope and encouragement. Thanks, ladies. We so appreciate you. We'll see you next week.